All right. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at the book of Proverbs. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Proverbs chapter 6. It's a little bit after the book of uh, Psalms, so you can kind of find that spot in your Bible. Before we do that, we just want to um, have some time of prayer. I think everybody knows this is the 10-year anniversary when the terrorists slammed their planes into the World Trade Center down there and brought them down and just all the economic ripples and the war that followed and all of those things. And it's good to kind of just um, stop and think about those things and what we learned from that or should have learned from that and what we we didn't learn from that, which we probably should have. Um, there's, it's pretty interesting. Just uh, last night, I was watching some YouTube stuff on you know anniversary stuff, and there was several Christian things, and I found it pretty disturbing that even some well-known Christians, when it came to standing before unbelievers and telling unbelievers, you know, all the unbelievers have this thought: is why did this happen? If God is good, why did this happen? And none of them were bold enough to say, because men are wicked. Nobody would say that. God made men perfect. And men have sought out many devices. And men do evil. And God gives men the freedom to do evil. A lot of people think in their mind, well, if God is good and he knows everything and he saw this was going to happen, why didn't he intervene and stop it? Well... You could think of it that way, but the, the question is this. How many people end up dying? Everybody. Uh, you're going to die in a, in a bomb or a car or a hospital bed or something. Everybody dies. The question is not why did those people die. The question is why does everybody die? And it's because of sin. It is appointed for men to die once and then comes the judgment. And really, the big issue is, why did those people die, you know, in the bomb? But really, why are any of us alive? And the reason is, is because God is gracious and merciful. If God wasn't gracious, if he wasn't merciful, what would happen is, every one of us would be instantly consumed because we're all sinners. But God, because he is loving and is gracious and is compassionate, he is giving people time to repent. And to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So you can't say, well, where's God's justice? Because to ask God for that is really to ask for your own judgment. And so God, being gracious and merciful, gives people time to repent. But when they don't listen to him, he often brings consequences. There's a psalm that says, the Lord sat at as king at the flood, and the Lord sits as king forever. Where was God when all those people who rejected Noah's preaching for you know 120 years, where was God when all that happened? He was the one who brought the consequence for the rejection of him. And so as we come this morning, as we prepare to look into God's word, as we kind of think for a moment about September 11th, let us not throw stones at God. Let us not do what many in, in New York City have done and since that time have grown more hard and more bitter towards God than ever. Instead of turning towards God because of the calamity, they have rejected him even more than they did before the calamity. 
So let's pray for them this morning and pray that as people ask us, we would give them the right answer. Pray with me. Father, we just ask this morning as we gather together as your people, we pray for all the families who were affected by the 9-11 attack some 10 years ago today and Think of the firemen and the business people and people who just lost their lives in that incredible, unexpected catastrophe. And Father, when we look at it, we, we marvel at 3,000 people dying, and yet we need to remind ourselves that more people die than 3,000 every single day all around the world that it is appointed for men to die once and that you have given us lives so that we can turn towards you and escape the judgment we deserve. Father, you are kind. You are merciful. You haven't destroyed us the moment we sin, but you give us opportunities to rebel against you that we might come to repentance like those terrorists who flew the plane. And so, Father, may we wake up to the brevity of life, when we wake up to the certainty of death, and may we be prepared, turning to Jesus Christ in faith, who gave his life, that we, through faith in him, could receive the free gift of eternal life. And Father, we also just pray that you would help us all as we now turn to your word, receive it to our own hearts, that we might live better for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are in the middle of or towards the end of actually a series on disciplines, godly disciplines, practicing various godly disciplines. And I was going to stop at August, but there were several others I just wanted, I just couldn't not do. So we're going a little farther than we normally do in our kind of summer series. And now we're looking at the discipline of work, practicing the discipline of work. Uh, when you talk about work today and laboring and toiling, it's almost a swear word. I mean, it's bad. Uh, the American dream is to not work, is to lay around, to rest and relax and have money and have other people cater to your every need. That is kind of the American dream. And, and most people, I think 65%, uh, some polls say, don't like their job. They're discontent. They grumble and they complain. And, and though they didn't quit, you know, measure grumbling and complaining, I'm sure the, the number is quite quite a bit higher than that. Not only that, there are many mechanisms in place that kind of keep people who are lazy and who work, or at least have a job, working, which is kind of odd. Uh, You have uh, things like uh, seniority status, uh, unions, a large corporate machinery, fear of getting sued, an ever-increasing government system that has created a lot of jobs where people who are incompetent and lazy can just stay, get paid, and not produce. And have very little, it takes an act of Congress to actually get them fired. The ideal job which people seek to obtain is the job where you can get a paid a lot and do a little. And so laziness is really the American dream. And people want to be like the rich fool in Luke chapter 12, verse 19, who after, you know, storing up, uh, working hard and, and making a lot of money, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your easy drink and be merry. That, that's really it. You know, if you could just get to the place where you could just indulge yourself 
Quit contributing to society. Quit blessing other people. That would be the life. Younger men are often not being men. You know, the goal of life is just to kind of hang out. And if mom and dad could just pay for their car and their gas and their car insurance and their cell phone and their internet connection and their laptop and their 60-inch TV in their bedroom, then it would be great because then they could just hang out and they could get a part-time job and just say use all their money to buy toys with. But what does God say about work? What does God say about the biblical view of work? How should we work? When should we work? How long should we work? Why does God want you to work? And this is what we're going to look at this morning as we examine Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. Now, Proverbs, the book of Proverbs is really... uh, wisdom sayings. It's full of what are called axioms of truth or truisms. They're not absolute formulas. So when you go to Proverbs, if it says, if you do this, you'll get that. Don't think, well, if I I did that and it didn't happen, that God is lying to you. He's not. If you train up a child in the way they should go, they usually will go in that way, but not always. They won't always go in that way. And not only that, if you correct a scoffer, he's not always going to punch you in the face. Though sometimes he does. So these are kind of truisms. And it doesn't mean we can pick and choose which ones to obey. We need to obey them all because they are how God is glorified and we are blessed. But if they don't give you the exact results you're looking for instantaneously, don't think God has somehow made a mistake. Because that's not the nature of them. These are wise things to do. But they're not formulas. One plus one equals two type things. Of course, the book of Proverbs has a whole bunch of parallelism. There is, you know, antithetical parallelism was the first line is antithetical or opposite of the second line. Sometimes you have what is called like synonymous parallelism where the first line pretty much says the same thing as the second line but in a different way. You have kind of a a synthetic parallelism where kind of each um, line kind of builds upon the next line and then you kind of have an ascending order of things where you know there's six things the Lord hates and yea even seven and there you know it builds up from there. So there's a lot of different uh, parallelisms in the book of Proverbs, which are important to notice. It's also important to notice that there are sometimes standalone Proverbs. It's just one verse that just speaks to itself and it's not really connected to the Proverbs around it, except that it teaches wisdom of God. And then sometimes you have um, what would be considered maybe um, uh, couplets or triplets or sections. Uh, Sometimes whole chapters are almost devoted, like Proverbs 7, where the naive young man gets seduced by the adulterous woman, or Proverbs 31, where you have the excellent wife. And in that way, there's a theme that carries through the whole uh, chapter. In our chapter, uh, chapter 6, which we're going to be looking at, we have little groups of related uh, Proverbs. And just so you know, the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs were written by Solomon as a wisdom curriculum for young men. There are a lot of great things in these first nine chapters that are directed towards young men and helping them be successful in life so that they give glory to God and that they are a blessing to others and get blessed themselves. So there's a lot of great things 
themes. In, in chapter 6, uh, for instance, we have some related sections, verses 1 through 5, the folly of becoming surety for another. Uh, we have verses 6 through 11, the necessity of work. Verses 12 through 19, the folly of being wicked and plotting and divisive perfe- person. And then in verses 20 through 35, addresses the folly of immorality and adultery. So the, the chapter is loaded, uh, given specifically to young men initially, and that's why you'll see in this section, my son, my son, my son. You'll see that phrase repeated over and over again. But if you have your Bibles, let's just look now at our text, which is verses 6 through 11, where we read this. Go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief officer or ruler prepares her food in summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and your poverty will come upon you like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. Well, what we're going to do is I'm just going to ask you an initial question, and then we're going to look at kind of two solutions, two solutions to the, pro- the problem of being a sluggard. The question is, are you a sluggard? We all, I think, have sluggardly tendencies in certain areas of our life, and this text is designed to kind of draw them out of us so that we can put them on the table and say, you know what, I've got... I'm lazy here and idle here and indolent here. And so I need to get with it in these areas. Look at the beginning of verse 6. I'm not going to look at the the exhortation at the very beginning, but just the little phrase after that. I want to look at who this section is being addressed to specifically, and it is addressed to, O sluggard. Now, a lot of you probably don't use the word sluggard very often, but you know what it means. The word sluggard appears 14 times in the Bible, and every time it's in the book of Proverbs. It speaks of a person who is slothful, who is unmotivated, who is idle, who is indolent, who is lethargic, who is lazy. I mean, we know what a sluggardly person is. And what's really interesting, when you look at all the verses on the sluggard, you see that the sluggard is sometimes contrasted with the upright And sometimes contrasted with the righteous, which tells us that the sluggard is antithetical. He is the opposite of an upright, righteous person, which means he's an evil, sinful person. And that's important to realize because I think a lot of times the lazy person, we kind of put up with them and think, well, yeah, we're kind of, you know, I'm kind of lazy, but you know, big deal. I just don't like working. Well, God says that's evil behavior. That's not just an option, but God says that's wrong. And that is why there are so many texts addressed to the sluggard. It is a moral, uh, 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 an evil thing to be a sluggard. It's wrong. Well, sluggardliness may manifest itself in a couple different ways. And, it, and you need to kind of think about this because I think a lot of times we don't. 
When somebody, when somebody let's just say we, have, we come upon a person who's a sluggard, what like two general categories might they be sluggardly in? Well, there's two different things. One, you can be a very busy person, a super hardworking person, you know, the businessman who's just going for it, 18 hours a day, making money hand over fist, and yet be a sluggard in the highest priorities God has given you. You're not reading your Bible. You're not praying. You're not serving. You're not giving. You're not loving your wife. You're not parenting your children. I mean, some of those things that are like the highest priority things God gives us, you're totally lazy in those areas, though in other areas, you're just working like crazy. So what's happened is your priorities have been hijacked by the world and you're burning yourself out for things destined to perish. I mean, it's not as bad as the next category. At least you're making money and providing for yourself. And that is the next one is, I think, what most people have come to mind when they think of a sluggard is the guy on the couch. You know, it looks like he grew up at the boneless chicken ranch. He's just kind of there with a the remote control and he's got a bowl of chips and he's, you know, I mean, that's it. You know, he's just, he just doesn't do anything. He's in bed. You know, he wakes up at the crack of noon. You see the teenager who sits at home all day and and just plays in the computer or video games or whatever and watches the pool guy maintain his pool and the gardener do his gardening and the housemaid clean the house. And he's a sluggard, though he may very be very busy doing all these things that don't matter. So when we talk about being lazy or idle or sluggardly, we're not merely we're not talking about inactivity and we're not talking about Lack of busyness. We're talking about lack of profitable labor. And when I say profitable, I do not mean money making, though that is part of it. What I mean, doing things that bless others, bless your family, give glory to God. You know, you can volunteer at church, but we're not paying you. But you're a huge blessing. You know, if you lose your job, you can sit around and get depressed all day and say, well, I don't have a job. Well, you could always wash your windows, clean the oven, do some yard work, organize that big pile of stuff you've always said you would but never have. You know, you can you can put yourself into a diligent labor. You can volunteer, you can serve. So there it's not just about inactivity when we're talking about being lazy, because even the person who works hard at being a sluggard works hard at being a sluggard. Proverbs chapter 26, verses 12 through 16 says, Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope than for a fool than for him. The sluggard says, There's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the open square as a door turns in its hinges. So the sluggard in his bed, the sluggard buries his hand deep in the dish and is weary to bring it to his mouth again. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. The sluggard is an expert on everything, especially work. He can tell you all about work. He just doesn't do it. He's like the person who's the financial expert and is broke. And just from that section there, he sees himself as wiser than others. He makes lame excuses. Man, I can't go outside. Do you know they've spotted mountain lions in the hills above Burbank? And you know what? If I go outside, they could attack me. And then he's described, you know, as this door on its hinges. 
pivoting on his bed. Why? Because his sleep is restless. Why? Because he doesn't work. And it is the working, the laboring man's uh, sleep that is sweet, not the sluggard. The sluggard's just, he's, he's too rested. So even though he's laying around, he still can't even sleep well. And he won't even raise a finger to provide for himself. The whole picture here is, uh, it's ridiculous. You take the sluggard's hand, you stick it in a bowl of food because he's starving to death and say, okay, go for it. And he goes, oh, I can't lift my arm. He reaches his hand deep into the dish, but is too wary to do this. That's it. I mean, he's got one foot to get it to his mouth, but he won't even lift an arm. He won't even do anything. And the the picture here is that often those who are lazy and indolent and slothful have given to them, put in front of them the very means they need to provide for themselves and they won't lift a finger. And in a spiritual sense, they won't turn a page of their Bible. Jim Newhouser, commenting on our text, said, The sluggard won't do any work unless he is forced. As soon as the boss isn't looking, he is messing around. When his supervisor is out of town, he comes in late and leaves early. He does the minimum amount of work. The only initiative he shows is in inventing excuses to avoid work, end quote. And that is just how it is with so many people. I mean, you know, you, you talk to people and say, I would never hire a Christian. Because so many people who call themselves Christians do that so they can come into churches, so they can drum up business, and then they don't do good work. And then what happens is the people who hire them get this sour taste, and then they bring reproach upon the name of Christ because they aren't doing excellent work. As you look at your life, you need to consider if you have sluggardly tendencies in any areas. How are you doing? Are you resting too much? Are you trying to preserve yourself too much? Are you, you know, what's going on in your life? And you may be exceedingly busy, but are you neglecting God's priorities for your life? Which is the whole uh, summer series. Well, you say, well, what's the solution? I can think of things in my life that, yeah, I probably need to amp up a little bit on and decrease on some other slothful tendencies. So what is the solution? Well, that's our second point. Look at the ant. Look at verse 6. It says, go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways and be wise. That, that's so interesting. You know, ants are pretty much everywhere. I mean, you know, they, they aren't in, you know, the Arctic or Antarctica. But, you know, other than that, they pretty much find places to exist in almost every climate. You know, and, and every kid who, you know, has a magnifying glass knows how fun it is to get the sun and scorch little ants. You know, I mean, that's how you learn. That's good. You need to say, get your kid a magnifying. Go out there and watch them. Yeah, you can burn a few up, but watch what they do. Like, well, what's going on with that? What is, why do we want to look at the ants? Because ants teach us some things that we all need to know when it comes to working. What, what, what happens in ants? Scientists have done some really amazing things recently. There are in some places, like in the, in the, around Israel and places like that in Africa, there's these huge, they have huge ant colonies. And so what they've done is they've always wanted to kind of figure out, so they've tried to put little cameras down there and little pipes, and of course the ants freak out and attack them, and they always have an issue. So they're trying to figure out how can we study these ants, and so what they've done is they brought huge cement trucks out there and filled up the entire ant colony with just 
concrete. Then, after having done that, they start digging the dirt away and they can see all the tunnels. And man, they're finding out, wow, ants are amazing. They can teach us things about architecture. They have things, they have some air vents where air goes in and some where hot air escapes. They, they're able to place, uh, they have little dump sites where they make compost and it heats up um, the air which goes up these shafts and draws cool air in and other parts of the colony. All the main arteries are always perfectly straight and every little subroom connects to a main artery so they have to take the fewest steps possible to get out the ant colony it's it's amazing all the things they're learning about ants but solomon gives us just three qualities about ants he wants us to consider there's more obviously and that is first look at verse seven which have no chief officer or ruler ants have a queen and she just lays eggs all the time so they they're self-motivated and don't need to be asked to work this is a very good quality you should just think of you know whether you have a job or not I get up and do something profitable, whether it's making money or blessing other people or blessing my family or blessing a neighbor. I look for work. I try to be industrious, holding still and laying around. There's a place for that a little bit. Even Jesus got away at times to pray. But the point is, is that you should not just think of idleness as like the ultimate goal of life. If you just like don't do anything, it's awesome. I mean, you shouldn't think of it that way. Working is what's awesome. Working is what makes life great. And you who are parents need to teach your children this, that working is a way you can bless other people. I mean, don't you like it when something needs to be done and somebody says, hey, hey, let me just deal that. Or, you know, uh, you have some babysitter come over to your house and you come home and your carpets are vacuumed, the dishes are done, the floors, it's like, well, what happened here? You know, we just wanted you to babysit. Well, I'm, you're paying me and, uh, you know, I'm going to do something. These are the kind of things that you teach your children. Look for things that need to be done. Don't wait to be asked. Be self-motivated. You don't need a human boss because you have another boss, right? Do your work as unto who? The Lord. Yeah, because it is the Lord whom you serve. And so he says, ants are great because even though they don't have anybody telling them what to do, they all know their place in the colony and they're going for it. And he says also, look at verse 8, and prepares her food in the summer. Ants do things like cut up food, chop up food. They take it down in their nest and they're preparing it. They're preparing it, they're, they're chopping it up and they're putting it in pieces and they're sorting it out and doing all kinds of things to make little fungus gardens under the grounds. They, they like fungus, I guess. It's like ice cream to them, I don't know. But they, they do things like that and it also says in the middle of verse 8, they gather her provision in the harvest. In other words, in the times of plenty, they work hard knowing that winter is coming and it won't be a time of plenty. I know a lot of you have, you know, work in the entertainment industry and you know this, right? You know that there are times when, yeah, things are going and the show's producing and all of a sudden it comes to an end. And then what? You, you wait because the job has ended. Now, if you spend all your money during the time of plenty, when you get to the time of zero, what happens? You go under. So you have to learn how to save money. Why? So when that time of one comes, you realize, you know what? I've got enough to hold me through for a week or two months or a year or whatever till I can get by 
so that I can recover in case a time of want comes. That's what ants do. You need to look at that. Solomon says, if you have sluggardly tendencies and prepare when there is feast time, store up. Like the seven years of blessing in Egypt, followed by the seven years of famine. Joseph said, yeah, we're storing up during these years and then we're going to use up during the next seven years after that. So in general, by observing the ant, you learn diligent industry for the good of others. Now there's a name for this. Diligent industry for the good of others. Can you think there's another name for this? Think about it in your head. What would that be? What would that word be? Love. That's what love is. Love is thinking about others, serving others, doing things for others, right? I mean, when you look at the definition of love that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 13, every single thing he mentions is about what you do for others. So love doesn't seek its own, but seeks the good of another person. This is really the motive behind why we work, because in working, we bless our boss, we bless our family, we bless our church, we bless friends, we bless society. We love them. By not working, we're not loving them. Because then we're taking rather than giving. You've probably uh, know about the Puritan work ethic. You've heard of that. Usually when the term Puritan is used, it's almost in a pejorative sense because the world hates the Puritans because they were so godly. But the Puritans study the Bible fanatically and they learned things like this. Oh, that's interesting. In Genesis 126 here, God, before the fall, told Adam and Eve that they would be ruling. They would be working at ruling. And not only that, they said, no, notice here in Genesis 2.15 that God had Adam and Eve working in the garden before the fall. That work was part of God's pre-fall blessing for man. He created men to be blessed by working, by working. That's why Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 2.24, there is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. Your labor is good. Your labor is from the hand of God. He later goes on to say in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 12 through 13, I know that there is nothing better, listen to that, nothing better for them than to rejoice and do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. Well, sometimes I wonder about that when I have to crawl under my house or into the attic of my house. Those two extremes do not work well for me. I hit my head in the bottom and I sweat too much on the top. You know, but what's interesting, if I spend some time in the attic, it makes the middle portion of my house very wonderful. So I can be thankful for that. I do do things that need to be done up there and down there. So yeah, we all have to do labor sometime that isn't fun. But you know what? We can still have a good attitude about it. We can be thankful that at least we can do it. We can be thankful that we're saving money. We can be thankful that we're doing something profitable, that we can glorify God, that we can have a good attitude. These are things that God wants us to have in all the labors which he has given us as a gift under the sun, for it is our lot in life to do it. And this is, of course, taught in both the Old and New Testaments. We 
We see this in First and Second Thessalonians. If you remember, uh, in First Thessalonians, Paul writes because one of the things that had happened, some false teachers got in there and said, "Jesus is coming! Quit your job, sell your stuff, sit on the hillside." You know, the prophet, you know, camping said, you know, whatever. And so everybody quit their job, and then they all went and kind of stood up on a hill, and they were kind of chilling out, waiting for something to happen. And they started getting hungry. So then they started going to the Christians who didn't believe the false prophets and saying, uh, you know, could you uh, feed us? Well, sure. And, and then they come back the next meal. We're still hungry. And then they come back the next meal. And we're still hungry. And so Paul writes and he says this to them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 12, 10 through 12. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands, just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. Whatever you do, don't go begging from an unbeliever after you have declared yourself to be a Christian, because now he's going, man, what's wrong with you? And they didn't listen. They didn't listen to Paul. So when he writes 2 Thessalonians, he comes down on them a little harder. And he says this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, for even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion and eat their own bread. So he's just saying, man, get on it. Get on it. Do not feed anybody unless they're willing to work. And this is really a huge principle that we need to learn as Christians so that we do the right thing towards those who are poor and those who are lazy and sluggardly. There's a huge difference. Poor people in the Bible are people who want to work, but because of either illness or injury or circumstances, they can't. They can't do it. And so they become impoverished because they want to work, but they can't. That is a poor person in the Bible. The lazy, sluggardly person is the person who can work, but won't. That person, we are not to help, except to give them work if we are able to do that. So when we go out and somebody comes up to you and they're perfectly healthy and honestly, hey, you know, could you give me a few? No. You need to work. The Bible commands me to not give to you. But what I do have, I will give to you. The gospel. And if you want to come to my house, I'll let you weed my planter. Oh, no, no, no. no. Consider some of these Puritan ideas about work and compare them with our own society and maybe your own work ethic. The Puritans believe first, every kind of labor had inherent dignity it didn't matter whether you were a housewife working to the glory of god or the president working to the glory of god or the judge working to the glory of god or the trash man working to the glory of god it didn't matter as long as you were working to the glory of god all labor had inherent dignity 
Secondly, the Puritans believed that since God was sovereign and his providence governed and guided all things, that every job, every vocation was a calling from God given to us for our good and the blessing of others and the glory of God himself. So that when you go out and you get a job, you don't have to think, well, that's not good. Well, God's providence brought you that. You need to be thankful for it because it is God who gives us the power to make wealth. Third, the Puritans saw all jobs as sacred, not just being a pastor. Why? Because every labor is an act of spiritual worship, at least it's supposed to be, and we're supposed to do all to the glory of God. So whether you're the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, you're supposed to do it to the glory of God, so it's all sacred. For the Puritans believe that since every vocation was the calling from God, that we shouldn't be bouncing around from profession to fashion trying to like just make the most money. No, we should see our profession as a calling from God and seek to do it with excellence so that we distinguish ourselves so much, we give glory to God, we help our employer, we bless society even more because we're so good at what we do instead of jockeying around all the time for a few more coins. Five, the primary motive of work and vocation, and this is really radical, were not financial. Just trying to tell, try to tell that to somebody who doesn't love God. Yeah, the working is not about making money. What? The, no, the motivation is to work hard in this life for the spiritual reward you will receive in eternity... And the inner contentment you will receive knowing you have given glory to God in your vocation. That's why we work hard. That is so radical. That is so opposite of the world. The world can't even fathom that one. Six, the Puritans believed that all success in any profession was not due to the hard work of the individual, but the blessing of God upon that individual's life. For it was God who gave that person life, God who gave that person strength, God who gave that person opportunity, God who gave that person gifts. And so it was God who gave them the ability to make wealth. And therefore, if you succeeded and made a lot of money, it was no occasion for you to boast like Nebuchadnezzar is this not Babylon the Great that I have built, but... Isn't God good? Look what God's done. Look how God has blessed me. And seven, though the Puritans scorned laziness and sought to maintain diligence in their work, they also believed in balance and moderation so that their work would never cause them to neglect their own relationship with the Lord, their family, or their church. Those are some great things from the Puritans. Leland Ryken in his work, uh, Worldly Saints, which is about the Puritans because they were in the world but lived as saints, quotes a few saying this. This is Richard Baxter. Choose that employment or calling in which you may be most serviceable to God. Choose not that in which you may be most rich or honored in the world, but that which you may do most good and best escape sinning. William Tyndale, who, of course, wrote one of the first English translations of the Bible, he said this, There is a difference between washing dishes and preaching the word of God. But to what pleases God, there is no difference at all. You see, some people feel like, and I, and I think this happens especially with moms who are at home they're just housewives. All I'm doing is raising my children and, you know, for the next generation or whatever. You know, it's just a, such a minor thing. No, that is the huge thing. 
And so as you fulfill God's calling as, your, as a mom, it's not just a housewife. It is one of the most important, one of the most respected jobs, ministries you can have because then you're pouring into your kids. You're teaching your kids. You're sharing the gospel with them. You're training them respect to work hard, to sweep. I've gone out with junior high and high schoolers and said, here, sweep this. They don't know how to use a broom. No, the fuzzy end down. Cotton Mather said a Christian should be able to give account not only for his occupation, but what he is in his occupation. It is not enough that a Christian have an occupation, but he must mind his occupation as it becomes a Christian. In other words, live like a Christian. You want to be one of those people that I would never hire that guy. He's a Christian. Oh, Mather says, let every Christian walk with God when he works at his calling, act in his occupation with an eye to God, act as under the eye of God. And he also goes on to say, is your business here clogged with any difficulties and inconveniences? Contentment under those difficulties is no little part of your homage to God who has placed you where you are. Oh, that is a great one to try and apply, isn't it? That when you're, you've got that boss, sometimes you're in that job and you're thinking, how did this person become management? It's just so unbelievable. It's like you promote somebody like that. It's like, mm. and you know, and you, everything's going good until the new person comes in and want to assert their authority and they're messing everything up. And you're just like, okay, okay. Contentment. Why? Because God didn't make you manager. He made you the glorified underling. To show that manager what it is to be a Christian and submit to authority. God says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all the glory of God. Think about that when you work. Or Colossians three seventeen, whether you, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Yeah, it's hard to submit to a wicked boss or an incompetent boss or, you know, to just put up with a lot of things you have to put up in the world. But you know what? If God hasn't given you a position to do something about it, then it's not out of your control. So do what you are given authority to do with excellence. So they go, man, everything that goes in that direction is done with excellence. And so that's just a sampling. Uh, There's so many texts in the Bible that address slaves and how they are to work uh, towards their master, which is a close parallel to really employees and employers. There's all the parables that speak of laboring in this life in anticipation of the life to come. And there's all the texts that speak of laboring in a ministry. I mean, there's so much in the Bible about this that we need to look into the scriptures like the Puritans did and kind of get a biblical theology of work. Proverbs 14, 23 says, In all labor there is profit, but mere talk leads only to ruin. You know, there are some people just like, yeah, one of these days. But they never do it. They're just talkers, but they're not doers. Third, the sluggard's interrogation and reformation. Now we're going to look at, so let's say you or you're counseling somebody or you're helping somebody to kind of get from, you know, just pure laziness to some sort of productive life behavior. How did you do that? Here's how you do that. Solomon um, gives us some 
wisdom on Reformation, and, uh, and he does it in two different ways. He first says, if you're a sluggard, bad things are going to happen to you, and if you're diligent, good things. So he gives both negative and positive motivation to not be a sluggard. He begins, though, if you look at verse 9 in our text, where he begins to interrogate the sluggard a little bit. This is a little monologue that Solomon's having in order to get the sluggard to, to kind of wake up to his condition. He says, how long will you lie down, O sluggard? And when will you arise from your sleep? He's, he's saying, I want you to consider how long the duration of your lying down. And I want you to tell me when you're going to get up. When's the alarm set? And of course, since he's a sluggard, he doesn't have any plans. And so he doesn't know. So Solomon then says in verses 10 through 11, tells him, warns him of impending consequences if he stays in bed all the time. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and your poverty will come upon you like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. Two impending consequences, poverty and need. And he describes them, which is very interesting, in two ways. One, like a vagabond or a beggar uh, who, you know, you come out of a restaurant or something and you're walking and all of a sudden somebody approaches you, hey, and he's looking for a handout. You don't make an appointment with a beggar, they just come to you, right? All of a sudden, you run into them. They're needy. You run into them and they want from you. So he says, sluggard, what's going to happen is poverty and need are just going to suddenly show up at your doorstep. And they're going to be trying to take from you. Then he uses another thing like an armed man. Literally, the Hebrew is like a man with a shield. This speaks of the resoluteness the resoluteness and kind of uh, attack of poverty that comes upon you suddenly. If you've ever, you know, done something dumb, like got yourself into huge credit card debt or, you know, any sort of debt where you can't pay your debts and all of a sudden you lose your job and all of a sudden you're like, what am I going to do? And you start going under and you've been reduced to utter poverty. You know that digging yourself out of just absolute poverty is difficult, right? There's resistance there, like a man with a shield, an armed man. And so if you don't plan ahead, if you don't store up for times of want, then what happens is, is when that time of want comes upon you, you can be really reduced to poverty. And then when you try to crawl yourself out of the hole you've dug... It's very difficult. There's great resistance. But if you store up, then when the trial comes, the financial trial comes, you can bear it because you've saved up. Since the, since the slugger does not do that, it's like he's attacked by this armed man who resists his recovery. Proverbs 20 verse 4 says, The slugger does not plow after autumn, so he begs during the harvest and has nothing. He doesn't plow when it's time to plow in the late fall after harvesting. He doesn't sow seeds. He procrastinates. He'll get to it. It's sealed. He'll get to it. He'll get to it. And then pretty soon it starts raining and it gets muddy and it's too wet to plow. And then he can't plant. And then the spring comes. No crops are growing and it's still too muddy. And by the time he can, it's too late to plant because the seeds won't survive. And so in the fall, he has nothing. He fails to plan ahead. We talked about that last week. 
Proverbs 24, verses 30 and 34 says, I passed by the field of the sluggard and by the vineyard of the man lacking sense. And behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with nettles and its stone wall was broken down. And when I saw, I reflected upon it and I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands of the rest. Your poverty will come upon you as a robber and your want like an armed man. Very similar to our text. People's laziness, of course, is seen in the way they dress, the way they speak, and the way they live. We know that. I mean, some people you come up to and it looks like they slept in their clothes and they haven't combed their hair and they haven't brushed their teeth. They're, well, I mean, they can't even do their personal hygiene. You can see slothfulness is often visible on the outside. You look at their room, you look at their car, you look at their house, you look at their yard. You can see slothfulness. It's visible. And that's what this is about. I passed by the field of the sluggard and I saw the weeds. I saw the wall was broken down. I saw the visual consequences of his sluggardliness. And of course, this is true in a spiritual sense. You start talking to somebody and you realize, boy, this person's pretty worldly in their language. This person doesn't seem to have much discernment. This person's entangled in sin. This person doesn't know their Bible. This person is engaged in things that they shouldn't be engaged in and they're not engaged in things they should. The consequences of spiritual slothfulness. And he thinks that, you know, things are going to be great if he's lazy, but it's not. Proverbs fifteen nineteen says the way of the, the lazy is a hedge of thorns. Have you ever tried to crawl through a hedge of thorns? It is bad. One time I was picking blackberries up in Washington and I don't know how I did it, but I weaseled my way into a very large patch of blackberries and got up on this little stump and I was picking and all of a sudden I lost my balance. This is not a good thing. Uh, all of a sudden, ah, ah, you know, it's like, ah, and you're trying to walk and you're, you know, I've got shorts on. That was smart. Um, it was summer. Other times I've been fishing and, you know, I get out of the stream and take off my waders and throw them over my shoulder and I start hiking through the forest and all of a sudden I realize, ow, 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 I'm in a patch of stinging nettles. Not good. It's very difficult. The world tells you if you're lazy, that's the way of ease. God says, no, it's a hedge of thorns. Proverbs 12, 24 gives another consequence. The slack hand will be put to forced labor. You know, if you don't work, if you don't provide for yourself, what happens is other people start taking control of your life. Have you noticed that? The IRS shows up. Your, your rank shows up. The police show up. You know what happens? You just don't, other people start taking over controlling you when you don't provide for yourself. Proverbs 13, 4 gives another consequence. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing. Notice his soul. It's even a spiritual thing. If you aren't working at practicing the godly disciplines in your life, your soul is going to be like the guy that Jeremiah speaks of in Jeremiah 17, who lives in the land of salt, a stony waste, a, you know, without inhabitant. You're just going to be dried up spiritually. You'll be an easy prey for every sin and temptation and weird doctrine that comes along. So those are just some of the negative reasons not to be a slugger. But there's positive motivation. These are kind of set out before the slugger is kind of the carrot stick to kind of come on, come on. Let's got to pick up the shovel, get the broom, you know. Come on, come on, let's do a little work here. I know you'll sweat, you'll get in shape eventually. Come on, you know. So, so the sluggard saying, well, so why would I want to do that? Well, here's some reasons. Proverbs 12, 24, the hand of the diligent will rule. You want to be ruled over? Or you want to be the person ruling? 
You know, every year we look for, for elders to help rule, manage, oversee the church. We're not looking for lazy people. We're looking for diligent people. The same with the women's ministry. We're looking for women who are diligent, who have a, a history of diligence in their walk with the Lord. Proverbs 13, 4 says the soul of the, the diligent is made fat. The whole idea is, is that he, he, his soul, his spiritual life is made fat. His whole being is blessed because he's diligent. Proverbs fifteen nineteen: the path of the upright is a highway as opposed to the hedge of thorns. Proverbs 21, 26, the righteous gives and does not hold back. You know, one of the neat things about being diligent and having an excess is you can be generous with people. You can give to the Lord, you can give to missions, you can do all kinds of things, and you can do it a lot, because the more diligent you are, the more you can be a blessing to other people. And the more lazy you are, the less you can. It comes down to this, do you want to be prosperous or impoverished, generous or selfish, at peace with God or enmity with him, fat of soul or spiritually starving, a leader or a slave? Do you want to travel on a highway or through a hedge of thorns? Those are the, that's what's put before the sluggard. So we have some homework here. What homework is that? Five things. Look at your life. Maybe talk about it with somebody, small group, whatever. Talk to the Lord about it. Are there areas in your life where you're kind of sluggardly, where you think, you know what, I'm really not giving God glory. I'm not doing this as unto the Lord. I'm just doing it. Consider that diligence in labor isn't first and foremost about making money, but blessing others and God. That your real rewards are in the future after you die. And that is when you cash in. That's when they get the big paycheck. Third, parents teach your children how to work and sweep and scrub and clean and do dishes and cook and, you know, do laundry check the oil on the car. Leah doesn't particularly like it when she has to do car maintenance. And I don't make her crawl under there and do everything, but I make her come out with me so she has to watch. You know, when I bring her out and say, okay, we're going to replace the headlight in the car. What do you think we need to do? Pop the hood. How do you do that? I don't know. Let's go look for a lever inside the cab. You know, these kinds of things. Pull on that. Okay. So now how do we get it open? Okay, this is how you do it. Now what do you do? Now you got it up. Put the stick in there. Okay. Where's the headlight? This room right here. Okay. How do you think we get that out? I don't know. Look, look. You know, um, I'll walk her through the process. Why? Because, you know, she's not going to be an auto mechanic, I don't think. Um, <laughs> but, but it's okay for her to learn how to do it if she needs to. Remember the ant and the Puritans and their work ethic and learn from them. And five, remember there is profit in all labor. Matthew Henry summarized our text well saying, diligence in business is every man's wisdom and duty. Not so much that he may attain worldly wealth as that he may not be a burden to others or scandal to the church. The ants are more diligent than slothful men. We may learn wisdom from the meanest insects and Be shamed by them. Habits of indolence and indulgence grow upon people. Thus life runs to waste and poverty. Though at first, at a distance, gradually draws near like a traveler. And when it arrives, it is like an armed man too strong to be resisted. All this may be applied to the concerns of our souls. 
How many love their sleep of sin and their dreams of worldly happiness? Shall we not seek to awaken such? Shall we not give diligence to secure our own salvation? That is so good. That's everything. There's only one other person who summarizes our text better, all the sluggard texts, into one little poem. Isaac Watts, the father of hymnology, a Puritan who took all the Proverbs and put them into this little poem that I will close with. "'Tis the voice of a sluggard. I heard him complain, "'You have waked me too soon. I must slumber again as the door and its hinges. So he in his bed turns his side and his shoulders and his heavy head.'" A little more sleep and a little more slumber. Thus he wastes half his days and his hours without number. And when he gets up, he sits folding his hands or walks about sauntering or trifling as he stands. I passed by his garden and saw the wild briar, the thorn and the thistle grow broader and higher. The clothes that hang in him are turning to rags and his money still wastes till he starves or he begs. I made him a visit, still hoping to find that he took better care of improving his mind. He told me his dreams, talked of eating and drinking, but scarce reads his Bible and never loves thinking. Said I then to my heart, here's a lesson for me. That man's but a picture of what I might be. But thanks to my friends for their care and my breeding, who taught me between times to love working and reading. Pray with me. Father, we thank you so much for what we were able to learn this morning from your word, from the sluggard. Father, we all have areas in our life where we need to be more diligent and areas of unprofitable busyness that we need to set aside. Help us, Father, to live more purposefully for you, for eternity, for the blessing of others, for the blessing of our own family, for the blessing of our church, for the glory of your name. And Father, in doing that, may you show us that there is profit in all labor, that it is our lot and life that is a gift from you, and you have given it to us that we might be blessed. Help us to teach our children that, and may we practice it so that the world may see that we are different. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.